So of course, the first time I sit down to record in months, I'm still working and getting the studio set up, so I'm sorry it's a little bit echoey, but it also seems to be a really busy day outside my house, so I apologize now if there are car horns honking, or dogs barking, or just loud engines, or people yelling, who knows. So I apologize for any of that that is inevitably going to happen and be in the background of this podcast, but we prevail. So, welcome back to the History Blurbs podcast after a several month unplanned hiatus. Things just got kind of crazy, but I will now be uploading twice a month on the second and fourth Sunday. So for my first episode of 2019, I'm going to be talking about one of my personal heroes, Margaret Chase Smith. Now, we've all kind of heard her name in history class throughout the years. If you don't remember hearing her name, that's okay. You'll be reminded today. The history books remember her for her Declaration of Conscience speech, where she became one of the first politicians to publicly denounce Senator Joseph McCarthy's personal brand of fear-mongering over communism. On June 1, 1950, the morning of her speech, she encountered McCarthy, and he told her she looked glum. She said, I'm going to make a speech today, and you're not going to like it. And of course, she was right. She was the first woman to serve in both houses of the U.S. Congress, but she didn't like being singled out for her gender, and asked, isn't a woman a human being? Why can't she just be a person? Even so, it's hard to get around the significance of her gender, especially since she became a representative in 1940, at a time when only about a quarter of the entire U.S. workforce was comprised of women. But Margaret didn't know any other way. She had started working at the age of 10, stocking shelves at the Five and Dime store. And when she graduated high school, she became a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse for 28 weeks. And then she took a job as a telephone operator for a whopping 10 cents an hour. A few years later, she became the circulation manager at the local independent reporter, where she met her husband, Clyde Smith. They married 11 years later, and he was 21 years her senior. A few years after that, Clyde was elected to the House of Representatives, with Margaret working as his full-time secretary. And when he died of a heart attack in 1940, she was elected to complete his unexpired term. It was a common practice at the time for a wife to complete her husband's term if he died in office. She was later elected in her own right. She's the first, and so far the only, woman to serve as chair of the Senate Republican Conference and voted against President Nixon's unsuccessful nominees to the Supreme Court. She was a strong supporter of the space program and a charter member of the Senate Aeronautical and Space Committee. James Webb, a NASA administrator, once said that the U.S. never would have put man on the moon if not for her. In mid-November of 1963, President Kennedy held what would be his last press conference, where he was asked to comment on the potential candidacy of Margaret Chase Smith. The prospect of a female presidential candidate seemed preposterous at the time, especially in the mostly male press corps. But Kennedy treated her seriously, calling her a very fine lady, but saying she's a very formidable political figure. One week later, Kennedy flew to Dallas. His death was a shocking experience for the nation, including Margaret Chase Smith. She canceled all of her speaking engagements and commitments for the rest of the year, deciding not to announce her decision on whether or not to run in the Republican presidential primaries until late January at the Women's National Press Club. Her campaign director drafted a choose-your-own-adventure-style speech for her with two different endings, one announcing that she was running and one declining to run. 
He asked her not to tell him her decision in advance. She portrayed herself as a reluctant contender and itemized many reasons not to run, confessing that she has no money, no time to campaign, and no organization to speak of. Then she announced that she was going to run for the GOP presidential nomination just the same. Her campaign had no press, no advance team, no headquarters, no chartered planes, no rallies, and she had very little time on the road because of her devotion to her Senate duties. Newspaper stories about her entrance into the race invariably mentioned her appearance and age, calling her trim and attractive, but calling her age a disqualifying factor. One went so far as to reference menopause and its, quote, effect on judgment and behavior, end quote, as a reason older women were unqualified, all while delicately sidestepping the term menopause. None of this was lost on Chase Smith. She observed that every news story began with the 66-year-old senator and said that she hadn't seen age played up in the case of male candidates. She knew full well it was a long shot. She said, I have few illusions and no money, but I'm staying for the finish. When people keep telling you you can't do a thing, you kind of like to try. She was the first woman to be placed in nomination in a major party's convention, placing fifth on the initial bid. She then refused to withdraw her name from the final ballot, denying Senator Goldwater unanimous consent, though she did campaign for him in the general election. And, as we know, the first female presidential candidate for a major party didn't come until the 2016 election, 52 years after Chase Smith's campaign and 21 years after her death. In 1972, she was defeated for re-election to the Senate after being plagued by rumors of poor health. She had been using a motor scooter around the Senate. During her time as a representative, she started wearing a red rose in her lapel every day. She ended up waging a campaign to have the rose declared the official flower of the United States. The Senate passed the resolution in 1985, and President Reagan signed the proclamation in November 1986. That poetic proclamation reads, Americans have always loved the flowers with which God decorates our land. More often than any other flower, we hold the rose dear as a symbol of life and love and devotion, of beauty and eternity. For the love of man and woman, for the love of mankind and God, for the love of country, Americans who would speak the language of the heart do so with a rose. We see proofs of this everywhere. The study of fossils reveals that the rose has existed in America for age upon age. We have always cultivated roses in our gardens. Our first president, George Washington, bred roses, and a variety he named after his mother is still grown today. The White House itself boasts a beautiful rose garden. We grow roses in all our 50 states. We find roses throughout our art, music, and literature. We decorate our celebrations and parades with roses. Most of all, we present roses to those we love, and we lavish them on our altars, our civil shrines, and the final resting places of our honored dead. The American people have long held a special place in their hearts for roses. Let us continue to cherish them, to honor the love and devotion they represent, and to bestow them on all we love, just as God has bestowed them upon us. The morning after Kennedy's assassination, she laid a red rose on his former Senate desk. Okay, I was going to end it there, but I decided I wanted to end on a slightly lighter note. So, in 1952, a reporter asked Margaret Chase Smith what she would do if she woke up one morning and found herself in the White House. She said, 
I'd go straight to Mrs. Truman and apologize. Then I'd go home. Thanks for listening.